You're listening to Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. Welcome to Twitch Asylum, episode number 12. Woody, you're going to have to get closer to the microphone. Who's going to hear you? They can hear me fine. All right. <laughs> Woody's back. He missed the last show. It's good. To, back good in effect. Have, Welcome yeah. back, Woody. Good to be and here. Where were you last time, Woody? Um, I was just not feeling great. I thought you were at work. I was. Yeah. But you're lying? You're lying to our listeners and saying you weren't feeling great? Uh, I, lie to my li- I lie to the listeners every day. All right. Every episode. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> Please well, it's honest. been a while for all of us. We're a little late on this episode. We had a lot going on. Just coincidentally, we all had a lot going on. Uh, uh, Chris and Woody were at a show. Yeah, we went to uh, the Penny Arcade Expo. Woody and I met up in Seattle. Yeah, hanging out in Seattle, you know, and uh, and went to the Penny Arcade Expo. We're going to talk about that, what we saw, what we didn't see, uh, what we saw but didn't want to see, and <laughs> other aspects of the Penny Arcade Expo. All right. Yeah. And uh, I, I also d- I also had to work a lot, Tom. Okay, I've been working a lot lately. Actually, my job is heating up quite a bit now. We're working on a release, so I haven't had as much time. Although it's been a month, so I did get a lot of gaming in. So I'll be talking about that later as well. So what have you been up to, Tom? What are you doing? Well, I went to an anime convention called KimuraCon, which uh, I also went to last year. Did they not have email at that convention, Tom? Because uh, I kept emailing I did, you and I wasn't getting any. I feedback. did not have email at okay. that convention. No. I did not take my computer. I just took my camera. I was there covering it for one of the websites I write for, the Journal of Lincoln Heights Literary Society. Um, I saw Piano Squall perform. We've talked about him before. He's a musician who plays a lot of video game music. That's right. Um, he performed a medley of Final Fantasy battle themes. He also performed a Nintendo old school medley. And while he was playing this, he had a video behind him with video clips of all the different Mario Nintendo games and stuff. And the crowd was really going wild. It was really fun That's to see that. That's very cool. Um, I have also been occupied playing a very difficult, very expensive single player game called Remodeling My House. Isn't that The Sims? Or <laughs> No, it's in real life, Remodeling oh, okay. My House. And, uh, you know, it really About puts- as much fun, though. It really yeah, right, puts yeah. costs in perspective when you see how expensive it is to remodel. Like, I remember in previous podcasts, we were sort of griping about, oh, the PS3 is going to be $600. Oh, boo-hoo, it's going to be so expensive. Well, you know what? I spent thousands of dollars on a new floor. And then a couple days ago, I spent $300 on just the wood to make you know new trim in, this, in these new rooms. That, that's just wood. That doesn't and, even have Blu-ray. It doesn't even play games. It's just wood. It doesn't have moving parts. When it you just realize how many there. games or electronics you could have bought, you realize like, what a mistake yeah. I made. Oh, right. man. You know, I could have had the PS3. But, no, I did need to remodel. Uh, I work with some power tools, and uh, fortunately, I'm lucky enough to not hurt myself. Um, Too much. You still have nine digits. Not too much. Yeah, I, I, I also spent some time <laughs> riding my motorcycle. I went to the Oregon coast and went to a motorcycle rally in Lincoln City. Uh, went on some other motorcycle trips, saw some stunt riders. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, there's just been so much going on this summer, but uh, now is, I think, a great time to be a gamer because it's just about that time of year when all the stuff, the new stuff gets released for the Christmas season. That's right. It's a good time to be a gamer. 
All right, we have a big show tonight. We have the discussion of the Penny Arcade Expo, and we're also in the Retro Respect section. We're focusing on Richard Garriott, uh, his company that he worked for and pretty much ran Origin and the Ultima series. All so, right, Ultima. All right, on to, what are we on to, Tom? The discussion. All right, Tom's on task tonight. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> All right, all about packs. All right, so you guys got to tell me about this uh, Penny Arcade Expo since I didn't get to go. What was that all? What was that like? What was it well, all? Well, Penny Arcade Expo is a show in Bellevue, Washington, and it's put on by Gabe and Tycho of the Penny Arcade comic. And uh, I went up there with uh, my wife and uh, her little brother. He's twelve, just turning thirteen now. And then I met up with Woody and we, my wife. Yeah. All right, and we met up also with a listener, uh, D. Davis, Daniel Davis, cool. was there as well. We met him. Really cool guy. Uh, but, you know, the whole thing really got off to a bad start for me, I gotta say. Because you were out in the line. Right. <laughs> so there's just like, I, we got there early, you know, it was right about the time it opened. Um, Amy's little brother and I, and there's this huge line around the building. I'm like, man, that's a huge ass line. So we got in the line, and, you know, it took forever, you know, and there's like the security dude working there, and I'm like, why is the line taking so long? He goes, I don't know. They should just be letting people in. So I wait, and I get all the way up to the front after like a half hour. And it turns out this line, when we get up to the front, was actually to get into the main uh, theater. It wasn't even to get into the place. For so one I, of the conferences, yeah. yeah. So I it was the wrong line, you're saying? It wasn't the line to get into the, the, yeah, the whole thing. We it was just, just the line to get into one of the sessions. Oh, so you could have just walked in. I could have yeah. just walked in, yeah. So we stood in this okay. line forever, but it wasn't very well marked, and nothing was very well marked, and... Well, yeah. well, my story wasn't bad, but mine's still a little embarrassing. Uh, we drive up in the car. It has to be related to the Penny Arcade Expo, Woody. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. But I got a story about that, too. So we drive up in the car, and we see all these lines around the building. And I'm thinking, oh, man, are we really going to stay in the line? It's hot out. The sun was shining. It was hot. So, But then there was parking underground. So I go, all right, we're going to pull in the parking spot. So we pull in. We go find a, 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 a spot. And we walk in through these elevators inside, and we go up the elevators, and we come out, and the place is just crowded. And I think, that's awesome. We just snuck past all the lines. We're just, <laughs> and now we're in the middle here. So we're walking around, but we're still trying to, we can't find it. We don't know what's going on, nothing, you know, we, don't, we haven't seen anything. And I finally realized that everyone else is walking around with these badges, oh, except no, me and my wife. Those? And I'm starting to get conspicuous. I keep thinking there's a security guard going to come up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, then I had to go outside and walk all the way around. Went to the end of that line that you were standing in. Yeah, the long um, line. And finally ran into some security guard outside, and I'm like, well, where do you get the badges to go in? And he's like, oh, back around the other corner of the building. So, yeah, I walked four blocks after I'd already been wow. in this building, got in. But after that, it went okay, besides the fact that it was so crowded. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Don't, don't spoil that, Woody. All right. We'll get to that later. <laughs> All right. In, in two minutes. All right, yeah. <laughs> Much later. So, uh, the show had... It's kind of weird. I, I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, I just, you know... It's like, I it's had no a, idea, yeah. yeah. So... It has a lot of different things to do. They have, like, free play areas where you can just play video games. They have console tournaments going on. They have an exhibition hall, and they have presentations. So let's go through one by one. Exhibition hall. This is essentially where different companies come and kind of show their wares, as it were. You know, games that they're producing. A lot of games that haven't been released yet. So it was kind of cool to go in there and see a lot of these games that aren't even out yet, right? Right. Hmm. But the uh, the exhibition, exhibition hall was, like, very small. 
It was like a, a high school gymnasium. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, dude. It's like about I expected to see like basketball hoops, like up, yeah, right? you know, yeah. it's like tiny, <laughs> tiny. But there's a lot of companies there. You know, there's Nintendo. There's Microsoft had a presence. That's cool. But uh, it was so, it was my favorite part. Yeah, I liked it was definitely my favorite games, part because yeah. they had a uh, the Warhammer um, right. MMO demoing. Right. It was really it was neat. So, but it was so crowded uh, early in the day when we went in. You really couldn't get up to play anything. No, no, it wasn't until later in the day, maybe like three or four o'clock, where I could actually play a game. Right, it didn't even occur to me to try and do anything there because it was, so, it was just yeah. so so crowded. Wow. So, but later in the day, I was able to play uh, several unreleased games. So I'm just gonna go through those real quick. I played Mech Assault on the DS, which I didn't even know they were making Mech Assault for the wow. DS. Was it good? It was. It was. It was not. It was all right. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it wasn't released yet, so we yeah. can't. You know, it was right. multi- judge it, it was multiplayer, which was kind of cool. Oh, cool. So I was set up. I was playing against other people. Max Assault on the DS. It was kind of interesting. I I kind of thought that was a Microsoft only property, but apparently not. Huh. So I also played Sonic on the PSP, which oh, cool. surprisingly was pretty cool. It had this kind of three dimensional look, unlike the ones you see on the DS. Right. It was definitely fun to play. So I'm kind of excited about that when it comes out. Um, let's see. What else was there, Woody? You just talked about... There was the Warhammer MMO, which was the thing I most wanted to see. Right. They also had that PSP dating simulation game that's coming out, which, yeah, whatever. Well, back to the Warhammer for a second. So, Woody, you still play World of Warcraft, right? I do from time to time. So, yeah. would you be tempted to, to switch to Warhammer or give it a try? I would definitely be interested in trying it, yeah. It seemed they very interesting. They had a bunch of computer setup and people were playing it. What, seems, right. what would be different about that from World of Warcraft? Um, I think it's much, from what I understand, it's um, much more geared towards massive battles. So whereas oh, World uh-huh. of Warcraft is, you know, there's a lot of the single player role playing and then you have the raids and guilds where you have 25 uh-huh. and 40 man teams. The way they're presenting it is, you're going to have battles with hundreds of other people. Cool. You know, massive, that massive battles. That's what that they're focusing fun. on. Yeah. So, and the graphics seemed... On par, maybe you know, slightly better than World of Warcraft, huh. um, but very similar. But it, I, and I didn't get really get a chance to play. I just watched some of the demos and some of the cutscenes and stuff they're showing. Yeah. Um, but it seemed very interesting. It's kind of cool. They had a whole row set of PCs set up, and people could sit down and play it. Right. And um, hey, did you take the poster too? I grabbed a bunch of stuff. I don't know. I have that poster. Yeah, they had I a really so. cool poster. Yeah. All right. They also, uh, I played Death Junior 2, which yawn. You know, I don't really, didn't like the first Death Junior. I don't think I like that one. Uh, the Nintendo DS stuff was cool, though. They had Mario vs. Donkey Kong 2 Attack of the Minis, which definitely <laughs> co- looked cool. It was kind of cool as they had the DSs hooked up to the screens, you know, like a dual screen oh, yeah. display in front of it. And it looked <laughs> awesome. I was like, I wish I could hook mine up to that kind of display. That'd be really cool. I also played Yoshi's Island 2 for the DS. Oh, Man, fun. that game rocks. Cool. That's a must-buy. You know, I loved Yoshi's Island, uh, and, and this <laughs> game, it just looks awesome on the DS. I uh, also played Mario 3-on-3, which, it, that might be released now. What is it? It's basketball, dude. Mario basketball? Mario basketball. And hmm. it's kind of weird because you play it with the stylus, the basketball, and it just, it's just pretty <laughs> odd to me. Have you heard about this game at all? No. All right, so basically, uh, use the stylus to kind of use it. Use the directional pad to move your guy around, but use the stylus like to bounce the ball, and you mm-hmm. can bounce on top of like the like the question boxes and stuff to collect <laughs> coins. And then when you score, you get the amount of coins or some bonus based on the coins. That it's, sounds really weird. It's weird and it's kind of hard to control, but in a way, it was kind of addictively fun. Hmm. So I'm I'm kind of thinking I'll probably get it. 
All right, so one of the other games I saw there was Castle Crashers for 360 Live Arcade. It's uh, by the Behemoth. Those are the people who did Alien Hominid. Right. Woody's about to... uh, There it goes. All right. right. (laughs) (laughs) And this game was really cool. It uh, had uh, four players playing simultaneously uh, on this kind of side-scrolling environment. It's kind of a beat-em-up game where you fight boss battles. Mm -hmm. Really cool graphics. Exactly what you would expect by the people that did. So it's sort of cartoony looking. Cartoony, yeah. 2D. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that. But I don't think it's coming out for... A while, but I mean, I was playing through it and it looked awesome. Sounds good. I was really uh, excited about that. Uh, saw Guitar Hero two. I saw Guitar Hero controller sitting in your living room earlier. That's right. I was jealous. I was like, "Wow, that's fun." I that's wish right. I had that. You just want to be me, don't you? Yeah, you're jealous. <laughs> I'll talk about that in uh, later on in the about episode. wanting to be you. No, no, about the Guitar Hero. Oh, oh okay. Also saw Pirates of the Burning Sea, which is a massively multiplayer online role-playing game with pirates, tactical ship combat, swashbuckling, etc. Did you see that at all, Woody? I did. I saw it. Yeah. It looked good. I, it actually just, to me, looked like um, Sid Meier's Pirates, the remake that I've just been playing recently. But is, is yeah. everybody a pirate, or are there different character classes? I didn't even realize it was an MMO. I yeah. just thought it was like the sequel to oh, his revamp. Okay. But it, I mean, it looked really good, but I didn't even realize what it was all about. Kind of a good idea, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of medieval, yeah. like, fantasy, massively multiplayer games. Why not have one with pirates? I mean, I would totally be into that. That sounds <laughs> like fun. Yeah. Something totally different. So, also saw Splinter Cell Double Agent for the 360, uh, which is kind of cool. And Does I'll that talk- look good? I mean, it, it looked like Splinter Cell. I mean, with better <laughs> graphics, right? I mean, okay. it's... The, the problem is there's not a whole lot of time to really focus, and that's a game that takes a bit more, you know, focus to right. kind of see what what it is. And it looked good. Were though. these playable or were these totally. just? Oh, they were. Just walk up and play them. Cool. Uh, walk up and push about fifty people out of the way and play them. But yeah, they were they were playable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Later in the day, it was pretty easy to get up to them um, and play them. So besides this uh, this whole. Uh, you know, exhibition hall. They also had free play areas, mm-hmm. and it was kind of weird. I found it kind of odd, right? Well, it was crowded. Yeah, what, it was, what was odd about it? It was super crowded. And what happens is, like, what I would expect is, like, I go to a lot of these shows, and they'll have games set up, and you just walk up and play them on free play, right? Right. Well, what they had was like a whole line that you had to get into to check out a game to play at one of the stations. That sounds like a hassle. It, yeah, and the line was super long. So we're like, do I want to wait for an hour and a half to play a game that I have at home anyway? You know, like, it didn't really make sense, right? Yeah, yeah. It was I guess that was to, like, you know, let people play different games instead of putting one game in each console in case someone more popular or what. I don't know. But you couldn't walk know. up and play anything. You had to, like, wait in this huge line and right. check out something. And again, I think it comes down to what they knew is it was lack of space. Because if they had space, they could have put all the games in a ton of machines right. and then had everybody walk up. But... I think they were they were trying to figure out solutions to lack of space. Maybe it's better than it would have been, but maybe it there still are more people strange. there than they anticipated. I, there was a lot of people there, dude. Yeah, hmm. yeah. So they had it separated into PC, PC and console areas too, so you could check out PC games or console games right. or whatever. They, but you know, like I said, we just walked around. Um, a lot of people were playing Dead Rising. Oh like, yeah, there was huge crowds around Dead Rising. People mm-hmm. were uh, really into that. And Guitar Hero was the other game that a lot of people were uh, were into. Mm-hmm. They also had tournaments, and again, separated into console and PC tournaments. And his little brother and I walked around before the tournament started and saw all the people, you know, getting ready for the Halo tournament and stuff like that. And then uh, Woody, you know, when we hooked up with Woody later, we went to go watch the people in the tournaments. And uh, what, what, what did we find? Woody? You could barely peek in the door. You couldn't get in. No, they wouldn't let you in. No, you could like, and and look, nothing so much like a huge computer lab. 
you know, you, mean, you couldn't get in. You mean you couldn't go watch? You couldn't them? get you into the watch. room. No, they no. said there was too many people and you couldn't go watch the oh, tournaments. Like the room was packed with the seats and everything. Mm. I mean, there was no standing room or barely any, and they certainly wouldn't let us in. Yeah, so that that didn't make me real happy. <laughs> so then the other thing besides uh, free play areas, tournaments, and the exhibition hall, they had presentations. And that was probably my, f- you know, next to the exhibition hall, that was really cool. So they had all these different tracks and things you could go in and, and see people that created the games and talk to them, and they'd have presentations. Uh, the first one we went to was the game trivia with Chatterbox. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chatterbox is another video game podcast. I don't know if you guys have ever listened to it. I listened to it every once in a while and it's, it's, it's a pretty good podcast and uh, he did a whole game trivia contest and the thing that I took out of that is that I f- made me feel really old because there's this <laughs> whole you know auditorium full of people and they're asking these questions and like nobody knew the answer and I'm sitting there and I knew every single one dude see to you that makes you feel old but to me when I'm in a situation like that it just reaffirms the fact that I know that 99% of the population are idiots. Right. Well, I already know that one. I don't need this to tell me that. Uh-huh. I can walk down the street and tell you that. Yeah, yeah. All right, so... It is sad how many in the gaming community. Right. Okay, so I wrote down some questions just for you guys, because okay. these are questions that apparently were tough for other people, and, uh, and here we go. So delay a little bit before you give your answer and give our listeners a chance to uh, answer these questions before you blurt it out. All right, so here's question number one. What do you call an arcade game that you can put drinks on? Tick-tock, tick-tock. A cocktail table? That's right, Woody, a <laughs> cocktail table. I'd call it a drink station. A drink station. <laughs> What's funny is like these kids in front of me, they were probably 16, 17. They were all sitting uh-huh. going, I, I don't know, dude. What? It? And then they go, cocktail table, when nobody got it. And they're uh-huh. like... Oh, yeah, I've heard of one of those. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, dude. All right. What game shipped with the Sega Genesis? Oh, oh, oh. Altered Beast. Tom. He didn't that was good. He, wait a second. Yeah. No, it was very... I, I remember that. Right. I remember the excitement of getting the Genesis and getting oh. that game. So, all right. So, next question. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> I don't know. All right. So, all right, Woody. Uh, okay, what is the new name of a company that is a merger of two other companies? One that was famous for Pac-Man. Tato? No. <laughs> no. Namco. Well, Namco is part of it. I knew this one. Come on, guys. We're a video game podcast. You got to represent. I would have said Namco, so I'm wrong. I'm stupid. So it's I- two companies. Namco's one company. Namco. <laughs> I don't know. It's Namco Bandai, guys. Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay. Oh. Even we're not perfect. Yeah. Well, of course, you're only including the questions that you knew. No, no. I knew, I knew, <laughs> you knew pretty all much all of them. All but right. there was a couple I didn't know. But they had, like, these three guys on stage. And one guy had, like, 27 points. And the other two had, like, zero and one point. <laughs> I'm like, dude, this is oh, just funny. embarrassing. I mean, seriously. So, anyway... Whatever. Uh, and they gave away, like, DSs to a lot of people, but we didn't get there right when it started, so I, wow. that would have been cool to get, but I, 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 didn't, hmm. I didn't get a DS. So I also went to this other session. It was called How the Industry is Busted and What is Being Done to Fix It. That's the only one I went to, and it, but it was good. It yeah. was good. It so, had Steve... How do you pronounce that? Boska? Boxa? Box... Sorry, we apologize for sorry yeah, we probably name butchered you your name, but uh, yeah, which B O C S K A. So there's yeah. something wrong with the industry, right? So he's a joint CEO of Hothead Games, and they're we should, making. We should talk about that. Sometime. They're, they're making the new Penny Arcade game, 
right? That's right. So he yes. was, yeah, he oh. was Kevin Bruner of Telltale Games. He's working on the Episodic Sam and Max games, which is really cool to hear about. Yeah. And uh, John Baez, he's from the Behemoth, and we talked about them earlier. Uh, Castle Crashers, Alien Hominid. Right. So uh, some of the stuff they talked about in we've touched on this obviously in a lot of previous podcasts. No originality in games. No originality is. Uh, I don't know. I just got this game that's called Saints Row that's really original where you drive around. Oh, wait a minute. There was <laughs> yeah. a game like this before, yeah. wasn't there? And I really like the... I don't... Who gave this story? It might have been uh, <laughs> Steve Boxa or I don't know how to pronounce it now. He gave this uh, Time Pilot story. Were you there for that, Woody? I, I vaguely remember what you're talking about. It'll come back to me. Yeah. So he was talking about the fact that I think it was at E3 and he, the story of Jason from Microsoft... Remember the story? Yeah, okay, yeah. So basically what he said, here's an epitome of what's wrong with the games industry. Okay, go. So <clears throat> he said he was playing Time Pilot at E3, and he was, you know, he's having a good game. He's, like, really going off on this game, and he's like, man, this is just how I remembered. It's great. I'm getting this really high score. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you in Time Pilot, you progress through the different, uh, you know, dogfights and yeah. time area. Yeah, and he was, like, really doing well. And this dude from Microsoft came up, and he's like, murder, murder, murder. and he's like, you know, they couldn't really hear him. You know, he's like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm having a good game. You know, ignore him. And he it just kept yelling at him. And finally, uh, he's like, he looked, and he goes, what were you trying to tell me? And he goes, if you go under options, you can turn it so you can get the new modern graphics. <laughs> so, he said it totally destroyed his game first of all so he got just to appease the guy he went ahead and turned it up to like the new modern graphics uh-huh. and uh he said the pl- the game played like crap it ruined, <laughs> it, ruined it for him it ruined yeah. it for him he said the gameplay was it was harder to play it didn't really have any uh you know the, the same feeling it was mm-hmm. you know it had graphics but it was tougher to, it didn't really have that feel of the original game mm-hmm. you know and it didn't it wasn't as fun to play and he said that's the epitome of what's wrong with the games industry interesting yeah. so, so what did they suggest to fix the game industry that wasn't what the session was. It was how well, the industry's but so it was, it was basically they, complaining. They, they, I mean, they, they talk about <laughs> different things, but it's a lot of what we covered before. Um, there, there, there's no bullet. There's no silver bullet, but they they do like some things. I mean, one of the problems people have is getting shelf space these days. Oh yeah. So the, mm-hmm. a lot they're very um, excited about online like distribution, Steam, the yeah. Steam model, um, right. and also um, Microsoft's the Xbox Live Arcade. Is right. they think promising? They're hoping uh, yeah. Sony's going to do similar well, thing. That's what uh, John Baez of the Behemoth was really excited about because he's like, you know, Castle Crashers, or not Castle Crashers, but the uh, Alien Hominid didn't sell all that well. And he said one reason was again difficult to getting shelf space, but with this distribution medium, they're able to get it. Which we talked about that right, in yeah. earlier, you know, podcast. And it was kind of funny because he kept taking surveys during the, during the presentation, like how many people have DS versus PSP, right? You know, three sixty. How many people are going to buy uh, or going to buy a PS three, right? You know, that kind of stuff. So, well, and weren't they all doing? Because I think the the Penny Arcade games are going to be a similar thing. They're going right. to be like bite size episodic, <laughs> right. and I think they're going to be online distribution. But what? did he say Ridge Racer? No, he, no, he, <laughs> no? he avoided oh, saying okay. that. So. Uh, John Baez, the guy, or I mean Kevin Bruner, who's doing Salmon Max episodic. Um, what was kind of interesting is he talked about the pricing. Like I guess those games, he said one thing that people have to get used to with episodic games, or at least the publishers, is selling them for a much cheaper price. And he like said like five bucks. Wow, for each five epi- bucks for each like episode. Well, or- because you're going to eventually buy a ten episodes. Right, right? exactly. Be- if you do ten episodes okay. a year, it gets. A fi- he goes, but yeah. a lot of uh, publishers have a problem. 
you know, selling something that cheap. Right. I think I think from a publisher point of view, like they probably think that if you sell something cheap, it, it reduces the perceived quality of it. That, mm-hmm. You know, if if you sell it real cheap, it must be not any good. Something like that. Well, and it's the same thing. I guess, it's the same thing that the music industry is fighting right now, um, going through pains about is that with the episodic content. One thing that's neat is that. Uh, Players can buy as much as they want. If they want to buy five episodes and then they have their fill, that's great. You know, but they and they've only paid right. twenty five bucks, but they feel satisfied. Some people are going to buy ten episodes, pay fifty bucks. And he even said, you know, some people they're hoping that people will buy you know twenty episodes and pay a hundred bucks right. for a game. They they think right. that some people do that, yeah. but at the same time, and the music industry is having the same problem. The the companies dislike going away from the fact that. They don't want to let those customers go with only buying twenty five dollars worth of stuff. Right. Just like the the music industry doesn't like selling single songs, they want to sell the whole yeah. album. So you get two good songs, and then you have to get the well, rest of a, it. It's a trade off of like some people are going to buy less, but some people might buy more. I mean, it reminds me of the whole Second Life phenomenon, where there are people who spend tens of thousands of dollars right. in Second Life on property and on you know these space stations and stuff. Right. And, and then, but somebody could just walk in and you know spend a few minutes and walk back out for free too. Right. And I guess so what they're saying was trade off. Yeah, that episodic, selling to people what they want, they think it's the future because they think they can make up for the people who don't buy as much. There will be people who buy more, and everyone's more satisfied. And right. they just they saw that as the way things are going, um, and people are just going to have to get used to it. The pub, the big publishers are going to have to get right. used to it. So that was a really cool discussion. Uh, the other discussion I went to was uh, Ubisoft, and they showed off uh, Spl- the new Splinter Cell. Um, and one of the things was they had the frag dolls play the multiplayer uh you know, version of Splinter Cell. Right, and the Frag these... Dolls is that group of girl gamers. Yeah. Dude, and I gotta say that it was just, they were kind of, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you, what, you didn't like them? <laughs> well, they were sort of prima donna-ish. I mean, they weren't really anything special to me. You know, like, I didn't see anything, you know, they're women, and I, I guess people need to get over it at some point. But, <laughs> like, this one girl from there, she apparently she had to go, like, outside of the little hall before it started. And she needed two guys to escort her because she thought it was going to be an issue. Hmm. I was just like, whatever. So Okay, I, I will step in, and I think that was probably ridiculous. But at the same time, I think it's sad that she would even been worried about that and the fact that you know i bet i bet it wasn't totally out of the blue uh, you know though because the, cause the uh, i think and myself included i was very awkward as a kid sometimes i think a lot of people <laughs> as a game, kid yeah i'm still a kid <laughs> I, I i just think oh, there may be a lot of people in the in this area who have more limited social skills and not even the majority but some might have but such what, what was going to happen to her just, you know, swarmed, or even, you know, the same kind of things, I don't, no, you know, just, you know, just hear what I'm saying, I don't think it's bad, but you know, the same kind of things that happen at like military academies, you know, it yeah. wouldn't be bad like that, but just, even if there's one little incident, it, it just can ruin the whole It just seemed kind of weird to me that they have these girl gamers, right, and they have to have escorts around because they're so, like, I just, it's the whole thing just well, seemed a bit. The saddest part is that it's such a rarity to have girl gamers. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So anyway, that was yeah. I wasn't really very excited about that whole thing, and I didn't really care to see him play multiplayer Splinter Cell. It seemed like a big advertisement, which it pretty much was, and it wasn't that exciting. All right. So the other thing I went to was the movie, the Video Game Revolution. It was actually a PBS documentary that they showed later at night, but it was a really good documentary. We kind of went through the whole history of video games <laughs> and how they've changed over time. Had a lot of people in it, like Ted Price and other people uh, from Insomniac and several other. You know, Nolan Bushnell was on there, and it was a really good documentary. 
I don't know if it's out yet or if it was kind of a sneak preview of something that's coming, but the most interesting part I took out of that is that Amy's little brother was totally into it. He totally enjoyed watching it and learning about the history, which he didn't really know. You and know, how, kind of the how old is he? He's 12. He's about to turn 13. Gotcha. So, but he was really into it. So I, I was like, it, it kind of went on a long time. And I, it was mm-hmm. like 10.30. I was like, do you want to go? He's like, no, I want to see the end of it. I want to see how it ends. And I'm like, so that was really cool. Uh, so in conclusion, uh, PAX, uh, very crowded. But it's supposed to be much bigger next year. And that would be... I, I heard uh, two, two things. I heard they almost hit... They were very close to 20,000 attendees. Um, incredibly crowded. I my understanding is they knew it was going to be crowded beforehand, but they couldn't switch this year just because obligations. But next year, apparently, they're going to hold it in a convention center in downtown Seattle, as opposed to That'd Bellevue, be cool. and it's going to have three times the space. Oh, cool! So it was, it, despite all the negatives of being crowded, it was very um, had a lot of potential. I will be go- definitely going back next year. All right, for sure. So, and I really liked the exhibition hall. It's probably my favorite thing. The presentations yes. were cool. Yes. The rest of it, not as cool. Um, <laughs> the other thing that was interesting is the huge DS presence there. I, I felt left out. Everybody had everybody. a DS, dude. It, like everybody there, you know, twenty thousand people. I, I guarantee above. How many PSPs? Not too okay, many. Okay, so I, I think it was about a fifty to one ratio. I don't remember seeing any. I PSPs. saw a couple PSPs, and I felt sorry for the people, really, because you know, <laughs> all these people got DSs, and then you see a PSP, and it's like you know. I mean, every there people like around on beanbags everywhere. Everyone yeah, that's had the other thing. Beanbags all, all, all around, playing. and people were well, no yeah, DSs it was, playing. There, everyone had the low white boxes, or yeah. someone had the. Um, yeah. The, the colored ones. And yeah, they the, had the older ones, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the DS Fat. But, um, yeah, but people were lounging around. They had a wireless area set up, so they oh, were nice. playing each other in games and stuff, and they are all cool. hanging out and chilling. It's crazy, dude. Like, I've never seen so many DSs in my life. <laughs> and so if people say that the t- PSP is close to the DS in terms of popularity, well, it wasn't so at this show. You no, know what I mean? No. But maybe these, are, maybe these are more dedicated gamers, so... Maybe it's a different, but and, and again, just to reiterate, we we've had some negative comments, sort of, but I don't want to give the wrong impression. I guess if if they were having it at the same place again next year, I probably would skip it just because it was so crowded, it was uncomfortable. But the fact that it's going to be in a big space next year and they recognize that, definitely something to hit next year. I think it'll be yeah. incredible. Yeah. I just worry I that even with three times the space, now that E3 is dead, you worry that it's <laughs> they're going to fill that too. Well, one thing that they said during that one session is a lot of the people were saying they hope that PAX is the new E3. Right. Well, I I remember reading one of the Tycho and Gabe. They had a comment about on their blog on their blog saying um, a lot of people are saying that you know we will be the next E3, and and he said. Um, we don't like to claim that because who wants to be the next uh, thing that just died? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so. All right, so it's on to the next segment, which is what, Tom? The news. Actually, no, it's uh, what we've been playing, Tom. Oh, I thought it was the news. <laughs> you were good. doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> It's time for what we've been playing. What have you been playing, Tom? I've been playing mostly Xbox 360 lately. Um, let me start with the games that are sort of rental games. I played the X-Men game. Now, this is kind of fun. Yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely fun to be the X-Men, but got bored with it pretty quick. Glad I just rented it. Now, the next one is Prey. Prey is a game that's got a lot of good reviews. I know there's a lot of uh, positive feelings about it, but this game just bored me. I, I have to say, you know... 
I felt the whole time like, geez, this is just Quake with different graphics. There's, with the there's, walking in anuses? You know, the, the walking on the walls thing, <laughs> it sounds good on paper. It sounds creative. But then when you do it, it's like, oh, big deal. They turned the room sideways. You know, it's... It, I don't know. It just didn't grab me. It didn't. It didn't entertain me. I got bored with it so quick. I was just ready for something else. Yeah. Um, didn't we cover Prey like two months ago, Tom? Yeah, but I hadn't played it. Yet. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I played Ninety Nine Nights. Now Ninety Nine Nights, another rental title. It actually has really good graphics and good sound. Yeah. And it has a pretty interesting plot. It's just kind of repetitive because it's that hack and slash, you know, destroy hundreds and thousands of enemies kind of a game. I played the demo and I, I wasn't very impressed. I just walked around. There was a ton of people. I like beat them up and walked to a different area and beat them up. I didn't. Yeah, it's it that Dynasty Warriors kind of thing where it's just a it's just repetitive hack and slash. But you know, it has an interesting plot because you start out as this character and. You know, you're you're fighting, and at first you're fighting against the enemy, and your character yells out things like, you know, let's show them what the Temple Knights can do, and this inspirational stuff, right? And then a few battles later, your character is like, well, they're retreating, but if we let them get away, they'll come back with reinforcements. Let's chase them. Let's, let's kill them all. And it kind of struck me that, you know, maybe slaughtering people who are fleeing from the battlefield wasn't the most heroic thing to do in the world, but, you know, you kind of go with it. And then after <laughs> another battle or two... It, you, it's, you see this starting to escalate where your character is is asking for more and more extreme things and and eventually your character, you know, you come across this village where there's like women and children and totally unarmed civilians and your character's like, let's kill them all, you know, let's not let any of them survive and it just starts to strike you that like, wait a minute, this is what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to I'm supposed to slaughter these unarmed children and and but that's part of the game is that plot and it really does make you question what's going on and you know is your character really somebody who is a good person and, and what's exactly happening here and i think that sort of that's interesting to me it, it, it's interesting when a game makes you think about what's really going on and question it so that was cool um now let's get to the games i really really like um Dead Rising, which of course Chris was probably the first of us to play, but Dead yeah. Rising is. But a, you, you you said you probably wouldn't be interested in it because it was too gory. From your descriptions of it, I thought oh, it would be too my gory. descriptions of it. No, I did because you were talking about like spinning people around on drills. Yeah, and, that's the best part of the game. But I okay, I rented the game and I played it, and it was really really fun. And yeah. yes, it's gory, but it's gory in kind of a silly way. It's not that's a, what I said. It's not gory in a disturbing way. <laughs> gory in a zombie way, right? And, and so it's great. And one of the things I like about it is that your character is a journalist. And so right. part of the game is going around and taking photos of different things. Right. So you take photos. Like if you take a photo of a zombie, like the closer it <laughs> yeah. is to you, the <laughs> more points you get. But yeah. the more risk you put yourself in by doing that. Right. And, and then you're supposed to take different kinds of pictures, like yep. sexy ones yeah. and, and disturbing ones have and you, funny Have your batteries ones. ran out yet? Yeah. And you, can, and you have to get new batteries Where did you find new store. batteries? At the photo store. Oh, I know. In the I mall. the photo store. Yeah. You can get more batteries. Yeah, mine just ran out, so I don't... So that game's really fun. Um, Saints Row, we were kind of joking about this, that it's it's just Grand Theft Auto. There's nothing original about it. But yet, hey, it's a really fun game. I've really enjoyed the heck out of the game. And one thing that's really funny about it... What do you like about it? Well, one thing that's really funny about it is that as you're driving around... There's so many pedestrians, and the pedestrians are so annoying. Yeah, you, you know, want they, to kill them. They're always like jaywalking, and yeah. they always seem to be crossing the street right when you're trying to make a turn. Yeah. And it's, you know what, though? 
it's exactly like driving around in downtown Portland. It's yeah. just like that in real life. But in the game, you can purposely run them over. And it, 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 there's something kind of funny about that. Yeah. Um, the, it, the graphics are great. Yeah. The sound is great. Um, you have know, you they, gone to the, uh, the alcohol store and, and bought anything? Yet? I haven't done that yet. Oh, yeah. But I have bought some clothes. Yeah, well, I bought a bowl there. Did you? <laughs> yeah. You can buy def- a lot of drugs there. I have not fun. even tried that. But yeah. what I noticed is you go, there's clothing stores and you can buy different clothes. And when you go on the missions, you get a clothing bonus if you're right. wearing cooler outfits. Have you played so, the online yet? No, I have not oh, played the Oh, you got to play the online, dude. I have not done that. Oh, it's awesome. I love the online. There's this game uh, where you have to basically... Um, it's it's kind of like capture the flag, except for it's uh-huh. like you get the chains from the people like when you kill them. You chains? Get, yeah, like gold like chains. Like gold chains? Yeah, right, chains like around their <laughs> neck. And you try to collect in as many as possible and then take them back to your drop box. Uh-huh. And the more you collect before going back there, the more uh, points you get Like for it. You see what I'm saying? So you, you don't want to just get one and run back. You would try to kill a whole bunch of people. And it's kind of a cool multiplayer aspect and... Uh, it's fun to play, and you, you get to get like the pimp hat, and uh, it's just you know it's a fun game, dude. You I like how in the single player you have to increase your reputation before you're yeah. eligible for certain missions, yeah. and you do that by going to it in different crimes and stuff. Yeah. And Amy watched me play it for quite funny. a bit, and I just you know just driving around was a blast. Dude. Have you found where you can spray paint? Yeah, there's places yeah. where you can spray paint graffiti, yeah. and yeah, driving around is fun, and the yeah. different vehicles are cool. I just go like hold up all the stores and stuff, and <laughs> have fun doing that. So, how far have you got in it? Not that far for like oh, yeah. the first couple missions. Yeah. I think it's a good game though. I'm um, enjoying it. Okay, I also rented Chrome Hounds, which is that giant mech game. Um, it's kind of fun as a rental, and it's not that it's a terrible game, but the thing about it is it doesn't really live up to the competitive games like uh, Ghost Recon or Call of Duty 2. Those are the kind of the games that I would compare it to. And the, one of the problems for me with Chrome Hounds is that the environments are really ugly. Like, you look around, and there are these sort of boring-looking fields and dumb-looking buildings, and it kind of reminds me of, like, a bad model train set environment or something. And I don't know whether it's harder to make stuff look good at that scale, because it's not, you know, it's, it's a scale where you're this giant, giant thing, right. and so the stuff's kind of small relative to you. And maybe that just inherently looks corny or something, but it just didn't look good. Um, gameplay was okay. You're a giant mech, so you move kind of slow. So it's kind of like if you were in Ghost Recon or Call of Duty, but you could only walk really, really slow. So that's another thing that kind of took away from it for me. Um, but it's okay as a rental. Here's a total uh, off-topic thing mm-hmm. that I'll just throw in now, since we didn't throw it in in the previous segment, okay. Tom. Is that uh, all the photo? I took a bunch of photos at the Penny Arcade Expo, and they're going to be online. Cool. So uh, just I'd throw that in. Hey, continue. All right. So finally, we got to get to my favorite 360 game that I just absolutely love, and that's uh, Test Drive. Test Drive for the 360. Test Drive Unlimited. Test Drive Unlimited. Yeah. yeah. Just bought this. I mean, it's incredible. They've modeled the entire Hawaiian island of Oahu down to every road. You can drive to all the landmarks. You can drive up to the North Shore. You can drive all around Waikiki. It's only 39 bucks, too, And right? it's cheaper. Yeah. It's cheaper than the other Xbox 360 games, yeah. but it's better than most of them. It's really, really fun. It's by Atari, um, right? Yeah, it's an Atari game. Um I've been to Hawaii, and one of the things I did there is I did rent a sports car, and I drove all around the island. So I've done some of this stuff in real life, and it's amazingly well depicted in the game. It's, That's cool. It's quite yeah. good. 
Um, there's all, I don't know if people will appreciate it as much who've never been to Hawaii because it'll just probably look like, oh yeah, there's scenery just like in every driving game. But that is the real scenery. Um, you can buy houses. They, they try to make it be more than a driving game. They try to make it be sort of like a little world. Like you start out in the airport as you, you know, go to Hawaii. And it, it felt real strange to me at first because it's like, wait a minute, this is a driving game. What am I doing in an airport? And, but actually, like you get there, you can buy houses. You visit the real estate agent. You can rent cars. Like if you don't have enough money to buy the real fancy car, you can rent it for a short amount of time, which I think is a cool feature. Um, the way you get coupons to buy clothes is you give rides to these supermodels who want to be taken around. Nice. Um, if you're on Xbox Live, you see other players' cars driving around in the world, That's which is cool. really cool. And then you can just go up to them and challenge them. You can do like an instant challenge. And, and if they accept, you create a race. And what you do is you just go to the map and put the finish line anywhere you want. And then you just race from wherever you are now to there. So you can make these just spur-of-the-moment, spontaneous races. And I did a little bit of that. That was real fun. Um, one thing that we've talked about in previous podcasts is... Chris, I know you've said, like, where's all the user-generated content that people are talking about when they talked about the 360? Right. yeah. Well, Test Drive really does have that, and they have a very clever mechanism for it. What they do is, if, if you're on the multiplayer mode, you can drive into these little, like, uh, drive-in restaurant places, and there will be these races posted, and they're races that other players have created. That's so, cool. Players can create their own races and they can lay out the track, you know, based right. on any any of the streets in, in Oahu. So they can basically make any course they want as the race course. And then they can set an amount that's the um, amount you have to pay as the entry fee to the race. And what happens is the race lasts for a certain amount of time. And at the end of the time limit, whoever has done that race in the shortest amount of time wins all the money from the nice. people's entry fees. So the more people compete in the race, the higher the pot gets that you would win if you win it. And then 10% of the money goes to the player who created the race in the first place as kind of a reward for creating that content. So it's really a very oh, cool, cool mechanism. So it's a buy? It's definitely a buy, yeah. And one thing I, lo I love about that game mechanic too is one of the things that sometimes happens in multiplayer games is you might log in and like you want to play a multiplayer race, but there aren't enough people logged in right then on that server, and it's kind of frustrating. Uh, you know, this happens on some of the Xbox Live Arcade games too, like Joust and stuff. Right, like sometimes yeah. nobody's playing it, right? Well, the great thing about this game mechanic is somebody creates that race and it's a time trial, and you don't have to be playing it at the exact same time as everybody else. Oh, that's cool. It'll just last for a certain number of hours or a certain number of days. And any time during that window, you can go compete in that race. Your time gets logged. It's almost like an auction or something. At the That's very, very end, cool. the reward is doled out. So it's really a great thing. And so, uh, yeah, user-created content is there. It's just this game is amazingly fun. It has everything going for it. It's got you know great-looking graphics. It's got the real-world environments that are very accurate to Hawaii. All kinds of different game modes. Um, if you drive badly and hit other cars, the police, you start getting like a wanted level like in Grand Theft Auto, and the police will start chasing you. And the funny thing is, like, back in Grand Theft Auto, if the police catch you, there's not that big a consequence. It's like, yeah, you start over from the jail. It's really no big deal. But in Test Drive, if you get caught, and I did the other day, you get fined. And the fine is proportional to how bad you were and how many vehicles you wrecked and stuff. And 
you have to pay some of your money. Well, but you need that money. That's what you're going to use to buy the next car, the next right. house, right? So it really hurts to have to pay that as a fine. That's it's cool. really it really gets you. So I had to pay like half of my money as a fine because <laughs> I was just out of Sheesh. control. So that taught me a lesson, I'll tell you. Yeah. Anyway, really fun game. I I think if I had to pick one game on the Xbox 360 to play for the next month or something, it would definitely be Test Drive. All right. Woody, what have you been playing? I got nothing. <laughs> Kingdom Hearts 2? Nah, I played a bit of Sid Meier's Pirates. Um, don't have a lot to say. I love it. It's great revamp. Um, graphics are great, but it's just it's like the old game. A lot of nostalgia, but they it's they they did the update correctly. Um, enjoy that a lot. I've been back playing a little Warcraft. Um and I'm actually on the lookout for the next for the next thing on the horizon. I'm start. I'm going. I'm, I'm trying to find another game to play at the moment. About 360. Yeah, we'll see. All right. So uh, <laughs> I've been playing uh, New Super Mario Brothers. I, I know on the, on the DS. On the DS, yeah. A while ago on a previous episode, I said, you know, I, maybe it was on the forum. I thought you you claimed that that game was going to be boring and that you already had played right. too many games like that or something. Yeah, but now you're playing it. That's huh? what I said. And um, <laughs> but I, I like that game. It's fun. Huh? <laughs> no, it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm like on the seventh world or something. I don't know how many there are. I think it's it's not that far from the end. Maybe it is. I think I'm on three. So you're past me now. Yeah, I'm way past you. We're three. The third world. Yeah. yeah. No, what I, li- I like about this game is just a pick up and play type game. Right. And yeah. I've been busy lately, so it's been cool just to like at night pick it up, play it, you know, get through a little bit, save it, you know, and then come back to it the next day. So it's a great game for that. Unlike a lot of 360 games where I feel like there's some investment I have to make, you know, right. before I, you know, where was I to pick up and continue and stuff. And that's what I kind of like about the DS is I can just pick it up and play it. In the game, you know, sure. I, I'm really enjoying it. It is a lot like the previous ones, but still, you know, it just has that. That you know Nintendo thing that just makes you want to play it, and and I'm having a, a good time playing it. The uh, other g- game I'm playing, well, one of the other games I'm playing is Guitar Hero for the PS2. I finally picked that All up right. about you know how, how long ago did that come out? Like a, quite a while ago. Quite a while ago. But my wife and I are playing that quite a bit. It's fun. Uh, everything I heard about it seems to be true. It's a blast to play. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to play guitar, so uh, I can you know kind of simulate it through Guitar Hero and know that I really can't play guitar. But it's a lot of fun to play. And my wife is totally into it, so it it's kind of fun every once in a while. <laughs> We're playing it on easy, and we'll like switch off on different songs and just try to get through the if levels. If you play it on the harder difficulties, it gets really hard. No, I know, but my wife couldn't yeah. handle that. But it's just fun for us to get together and play yeah. it. Your wife. I'm doing air quotes. Yeah, well, yeah <laughs> right. Couldn't handle it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, yeah. my brother plays guitar in real life, and he tells me that if you do really play guitar, it actually makes the game harder because where you're, you know, doing the positions on the guitar right. is not exactly right. And so it's actually an advantage to not play guitar. You have to unlearn what you know. <laughs> then yeah. I must be really good at it then. I don't play guitar at all. Uh, I did play some more NCAA football 2007. Uh, I found there's this really cool thing called matchup settings. What's so that? Well, basically, you can say I want to play somebody at my skill level, and then um. I finally got a win. But I won like <laughs> 56 to 3. Oh, well, so, it doesn't sound like that was someone at your skill level. That sounds like somebody it, below but your so skill I, level. Either I get blown out or I blow them out. I can't find the like right, the perfect, level. Yeah, the perfect level of competition. But what was kind of cool is on the when you're not playing a ranked game, you can make it like three-minute quarters, which oh, yeah. is good because the game takes like a half hour with three-minute quarters. Uh-huh. But when you go to play ranked matches, it forces you to play five-minute quarters, uh-huh. which to me is kind of lame because you know how long five-minute quarters take? It's always like over an hour. 
to so, play one game. To play one game. And it's like, that's a lot of time to play one football game, you know? Uh-huh. It just seems too long. So I've been playing unranked matches, even though it'd be cool well, to that, play. Getting back to test drive, that's what's great because you can do those instant challenges. And so you can play a game against another player that lasts like one minute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really fun. So I find it kind of frustrating. So I've been playing a lot of unranked matches just because I don't have that much time to invest, like an hour. Right. And the thing is, too, if I play somebody who's way better than me, I'm down 28, you know, in the first half, and I got to sit there for another half hour playing this guy because I don't want to disconnect because then he's going to give me negative feedback. You know what I mean? So it's right. like, ugh, I don't know. It's kind of lame. Played a lot of Saints Row, but you already kind of covered that. I mean, yeah. I'm having a blast with that. And then at, at work, oh, I should also say that the multiplayer, it's kind of slow to join <laughs> matches and it's a bit laggy, but apparently they're going to be uh, publishing a patch. For that. Ah, okay. So that's kind of cool. Keep an eye out for that if anybody out there has it. Uh, MAME cabinet at work, we put together a MAME cabinet. Cool. Which is really cool. Uh, finally got it together. We've been talking about it for a long time. Uh, so I've been playing a lot of games on MAME. I've been playing Defender, uh, Track and Field, Metal Slug, <laughs> NBA Jam, and having a blast playing people at work. So Fun. Uh, if you guys out there, you should uh, definitely, if you're into the old arcade games, look at building a main cabinet using an actual arcade game because it's it's a, it's a blast. All right, this time on the Retro Respect section, we're talking about Origin and Richard Garriott. And really the ultimate games, I guess, overall. Origin produced quite a number of games, but we're focusing primarily on Ultima. We will hit on the others, but... Uh, because prim- it's the ultimate. That, yeah, something like that. <laughs> so, uh, why did we choose this topic? Well, uh, Origin really pioneered the genre of RPGs. Right, you can definitely see the influence of the games that they produced in a lot of the games that we see today, like Oblivion and, and other modern games. A lot of the things that they came up with, uh, you know, Richard came up with early on, you can still see them in games today. So we thought it was an interesting topic. And personally, Ultima 3 probably had the greatest influence on me from like how I approach games or how I look at games. And how you approach life? Else. Yes, in fact. <laughs> but we'll get to that. Yeah, Definitely. So, a little bit of background. Uh, Richard Garrity was born in Cambridge, England, and raised in League City, Texas. He's the son of Skylab and Space Lab astronaut Owen K. Garriott. I didn't realize he was the son of an astronaut yeah. until we started researching this. So yeah. That's and, and, in fact, I think there is some relevance to that in the games that he produced, but we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. So, 1977, Richard Garriott, at age 15, is writing dungeon-based games on a teletype machine in school. And uh, he was... Given the nickname Lord British, uh, in his high school days, when older kids were giving out nicknames to the younger kids, and he was given the name Lord British because he was said to have a British accent. Which makes sense. He was uh, born in Cambridge, England, so right. uh, that makes sense. So, 1979, at age 19, uh, Richard took a job at a local computer land store in Clear City, Texas. Is that Clear Lake, Clear Lake City. City. Yeah. yeah. That's what I said. Exactly. All right. So uh, they were using, uh, they were selling Apple II computers there, and during downtimes at the store, I guess Richard would write programs for the Apple II. Right, and his first game, A Calabeth, was written in AppleSoft Basic and stored on cassette tape. Yeah. And uh, his no manager, no floppy, yeah, no floppies yet. 
<laughs> Richard, man- his manager at Computerland, suggested that he make some copies of the game and sell them at the store. And he uh, he went in all out and uh, packaged it with you know like the the nice packaging uh, using Ziploc bags. I believe Ziploc right? bags. Yeah. Right. Now I bought this game and I bought it at a Computerland. Probably wasn't the same Computerland. It was a chain. But uh, I remember the Ziploc bags. I remember those and. I'm sure that this game would not impress anybody today with its graphical excellence because it was this very crude wireframe uh, game, but at the time, it was amazing. And I took this home, popped it in the Apple II, and I went, wow, you know, this is like real dungeon exploration, and there's graphics, and you can see the hallways, and it was quite, a, quite an impressive thing at the time. I guess his manager was fairly impressed as well because he didn't even tell Richard this, but uh, he sent it to the California Pacific Computer Company, who was a game publisher, and uh, Richard ultimately signed a contract with them to distribute the game on a five and a quarter disc, and the game went on to sell over 30,000 copies. Wow. So, uh, Akalabeth, it was called The World of Doom, I believe. Akalabeth, The World of Doom. Mm-hmm. What, and some of the aspects of the game is it's really been recognized as one of the first commercial computer role-playing games. And although it was Richard's first commercial game, it was actually the 28th game he produced in his high school years, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, to have written 28 games and still be in high school, wow. And he said that it was uh, inspired by Dungeons & Dragons and the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, and the game attempts to bring uh, sort of the pen and paper role-playing games to the computer platform. And I guess it was really one of the first games to do that. So the player in the game, he receives quests from Lord British uh, to kill uh, in succession ten increasingly more difficult monsters. And where does the name derive? Uh, the name comes from the name uh, Akalabeth in Tolkien's Cimmerillion. And i got to say, I've even read The Silmarillion, and I'm not even nerd enough to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and as Tom mentioned earlier, the majority of the gameplay takes place in a dungeon rendered in simple wireframe, uh, first-person perspective graphics. Right, it was a dungeon crawl. Right, almost. with a simple above-ground map and text to fill out the rest of the adventure. Um, it's, it's really seen also as the first game in the Ultima series, although it's not Ultima 1. People refer to it as Ultima Zero. It's a precursor, yeah. Right. right. So I have to say a few things about the name Lord British and Akalabeth. Uh, of course, we're talking about Richard Garriott, but I remember when these games came out, at first, Lord British was sort of a mysterious figure. And he really just went by Lord British as far as the games were concerned, and people did not know his real name. It was hard to find the name Garriott in anywhere in the packaging. And there was a lot of speculation about who was this Lord British, and there were even weird conspiracy theories and you know strange theories going around on the on the message boards back then. And I remember one theory was that the name Akalabeth was really code for A.K.A. L.A. Beth. In other words, it was someone named Beth who lived in L.A. was really Lord British. What were you uh, smoking at the time, Tom? Um, nothing. But this was in the message boards for gaming back then. All right, L.A. Of course, it turned out not to be true. It was just Richard Garriott. <laughs> All right, so in 1979, Richard decides to enroll in the University of Texas. And uh, at that point, he begins to work on the first official Ultima, along with his friend Ken Arnold, who's... Uh, and both of them actually worked out of his parents' uh, bedroom closet, which is a good place to produce games, I hear. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even a garage shop. It was a, it was a closet, closet shop. They hadn't, they hadn't moved up to the garage yet. It was pre-garage. Wow. So in 1980, while at Texas, uh, Richard joined... What What did he join, Tom? The Society for Creative Anachronism, which yeah. is those people who sort of reenact different medieval concepts and you know you, use uh, 
armor and and wooden swords and stuff. I've seen them a few times. Kind of yeah, cool. I think they had down, down at OSU like a Renaissance fair. Yeah, but these are like yeah. the hardcore Renaissance fairs where people actually joust and crazy, yeah, yeah. crazy people. Yeah. So a lot of those crazy people, I guess, uh, would later become integral to the games. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so and Ultima again was published by California Pacific, the same people that did the the first game. So let's talk a little bit about Ultima One. It's also known as the First Age of Darkness. It uh, featured a storyline revolving around a quest to find and destroy a gem of power belonging to an evil wizard known as Mondane, who has enslaved the lands of Cesaria. So, uh, I guess he traveled back in time and swamped the whole world with monsters while he was patiently waiting till people could not handle them anymore and he'd take over as a sole ruler. But he miscalculated, and what <laughs> happened, Tom? A hero emerged, and after a series of quests for various kings, real-time space combat, and lots of dungeon crawling, the hero managed to reach Mondain's lair and kill him. Now, some of you may have noticed a strange phrase in in what Chris just said, real-time space combat. When I played this game, there's this moment where, you know, you're going through this very Lord of the Rings-like setting with fantasy and monsters... And then there's a part where you get in a spaceship and fly around in space. And I just remember this being so bizarre. Like, I remember talking to my friends and going, like, what is with this? You get a, you get a spaceship and you, you fly around like Star Wars? Like, what's going on? But you can see, obviously, that probably came from the fact that his father was an, an astronaut. So he's definitely into <laughs> the whole, like, space thing, right? Right. Yeah, it makes sense. So I guess the original name was Ultimatum. But the name was already trademarked by a board game, so the publisher suggested truncating it to Ultima. So that's how they came up with the name Ultima. And it was one of the first computer RPGs and one of the first commercial games, actually the first commercial game, to feature tiled graphics to represent the environment. Right, and his friend Ken Arnold is the person who developed the tiled graphics system. And unlike the rest of the program, which was probably programmed in BASIC, I'm guessing, like his first game, uh, the tiled graphics system used uh, machine language. And it differed from Macalabeth in terms of the character interaction. Um, each town had various shops. Each castle had a, a various people with, you know, everything from the ruler to prisoners and princesses and jesters and guards. And you could talk to them on different topics. You could try to steal from the shopkeepers. Now, it sounds familiar. If you've ever played any RPG these days, those elements seem like just the, the absolute basics that are in every game. But you have to remember, back then, that was an innovation. Yeah, definitely. And so in 1981, after Ultima 1 was released, the, t- the movie Time Bandits is released. Remember that movie? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I do remember oh, that. Yeah. Did you like that movie? I don't remember. I thought it was bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched it since and I like it, but back yeah. then it was very strange. I gotta go see that again. I haven't... You know, Much like Buckaroo Banzai. I don't think Time I even Bandits, understood it at the time. Wasn't Time Bandits Terry Gilliam? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. So I guess Richard and his friends uh, went to the movie theaters over and over trying to copy the maps used in the movie, and they wanted to use that idea in the design of Ultima 2. And uh, at about that time, California Pacific goes out of business, and Richard then signed a deal with Sierra Online to produce and distribute his games, and it seems to me that Sierra Online comes up in every single podcast for some reason. Yeah. It's well, crazy. they had a hand in all the, the back backstory. Apparently. So what was the main reason they signed with Sierra, do you know? I don't. Oh, actually, I do. I do. <laughs> you look at the script, you do. I did. Well, I remember now. <laughs> yeah. They agreed to include a cloth map, which right. was so awesome. Yeah, I remember the cloth map. That was like the huge thing about Ultima. You'd get the yep. Ultima, and you had this cloth map. It was all like professional looking, and I guess it was inspired by Time Bandits. So. Well, and what an inspired way of um, 
fighting uh, copy copy infringement. You know, right. making you know you could copy the game, of course, back then and play it, but but you, you wouldn't you, get the you map. wouldn't get the map. And the right. map was key. Yeah, it's kind of like Infocom. They did a lot of that too, right? Yeah, right. yeah. And they come up in every podcast as well. <laughs> All right, so uh, <laughs> so uh, in, around that same time, I guess the first IBM PCs were sold. But again, uh, Richard was very focused on Apple II development. Uh, so in 1982, Ultima 2 was released for the Apple II, and due to the deal he signed with Sierra, he made uh, less than desirable royalties for a PC port of Ultima 2. So that, that didn't make him real happy. So he started thinking about moving to a new distributor. So let's talk a little bit about Ultima 2, uh, also known as The Revenge of the Enchantress. I guess uh, the game story, we learned that uh, Mondane's lover, who was, uh, Mondane was the dude from the first game, right? Mm-hmm. His uh, lover, Minex, is threatening our Earth through disturbances in the space-time continuum. Lover and apprentice, I believe. Okay. And the player... Whatever. Okay. And the player <laughs> must guide a hero through time to destroy her. So I guess the player travels to other planets in the solar system in order to gain a critical item. So, uh, so again, it was a mix of the fantasy, but still had the uh, sci-fi. You travel in rocket ships. And I, re- I distinctly remember that one of the keys was you had to figure out how to get to planet X. Which was yeah. like 10th planet. Right. It was very interesting. And I guess a lot of fans consider this probably one of the weakest games of the Ultima series. And in fact, some have even speculated that Garriott was somehow disgruntled with the prospect of working with Sierra Online. And he uh, intended this game to be partially an exercise in learning to write assembly code, you know, instead of the basic mm-hmm. that he'd been writing. Uh, and he put a lot of the game together partly just as a joke, and they actually uh, published it. That's just speculation, of course. Well, the game so. does contain some really bizarre elements. Like, the game's world map is really just, like, real-life Earth. And the player has to go to locations like San Antonio and the Soviet Union and the UK. And you use modern-day futuristic weaponry. And there's all sorts of weird pop culture references and stuff. And also, the game's known to contain a lot of bugs. And it really shows signs of being written in a hurry and kind of rushed to market before being fully tested. But still, I mean, I played this and the first one, and it was a huge... It was a huge jump over the first one, just in terms oh, yeah. of size and everything. So definitely, he might have been more experimental at the time, and there might have been bugs. He might have been sloppy about that. But I can't see this as being a throwaway. I mean, it was so much. It was so much more advanced than the well, first it did, one. It did sell very well. Yeah. So I mean, but. Okay. so also in 1982, he uh, he decided to drop out a full time study at the University of Texas so they could concentrate on Ultima Three. Uh, still working out of his parents' house in Houston. I don't know if he moved up to the garage or if he was still in the closet. Let's, <laughs> let's assume he moved out of the out of the closet. But and then in 1983, uh, you know they were pretty upset about this whole Sierra thing and not making much money. So Origin Systems is founded by Richard Garriott, his brother Robert Garriott, Owen Garriott, his father, and Chuck Boucher. Buki Boucher. I really don't know how to pronounce that. Who's uh, is that? Chuckles Jester, I guess, in a lot of games. Yeah, I think it is. You're right. Yeah, it is. So, and then they hired their first outside employee, Jeff Milhouse, also known Hillhouse. as What did I say, Milhouse? Yes. Damn it! It's not Hillhouse. the Simpsons. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's exactly what I was thinking. So he's also known as Sir Jeffrey in the later games. I remember him too. Yeah, me too. So one of the things that they established early on was a philosophy of making games like a lot of these early companies did right mm-hmm. and their philosophy was a commitment to do whatever it takes to ship the director's vision uh, and the motto was a game is only late until it ships but it sucks forever and I, I believe that's true right yeah yeah that's a good motto <laughs> you can think of some games that probably shipped a bit too early and have sucked forever right yeah, yeah so anyway well, Duke Nukem Forever doesn't have that problem yet because it doesn't ship <laughs> it doesn't ship <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, if it comes out and it's a good game, nobody's going to remember that. Well, I guess they will. Nobody will remember like, that it was 10 years, ten years late. late. Maybe 10 years is a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I don't know. So uh, it also, if, if it meant delaying a project and writing huge chunks of code from the ground up, you know, versus like using off-the-shelf components, that's what they do to get their creative vision correct. So they really wanted to produce the game that they wanted to produce and, you know, the schedule be damned, I guess, right? Yeah, and supposedly Garriott even made it a point of pride to start each new Ultima completely from scratch without a single line of code carried over from previous games. And that seems like a really bold step. Right. You know, but yeah, and it actually comes into play later when we get to uh, Ultima 7. But All right, so Origin then released Ultima 3 for the Apple II, and that's the first Ultima game published by Origin Systems. And it really had an immense influence on the development of both the American and Japanese traditions of role-playing video games. And it's probably considered one of the most influential video games ever made. I mean, I'd have to agree. Certainly so, for me. So the story, I guess, of Exodus, and uh, that's Ultima Three Exodus, uh, centers on a quest back to Caesarea to destroy the final remnant of the evil mundane and Minex, which obviously they were in, in Ultima One and Two. And it really featured revolutionary graphics for its time. It was the first computer RPG to feature animated characters. Right, and also, the player also got to direct the actions of a party instead of a single character. Right. I guess players now battled with groups of enemies on a separate battle screen, where the player has to fully understand the fairly complex weapons and magic systems. Yep. And unlike the wireframe dungeons of the previous Ultima games, uh, I believe it had like a solid 3D appearance. Is that? Do you remember that at all? I think so. Yeah, and it it also had not as many futuristic references. It was more focused on yeah, fantasy. Yeah, all that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I definitely remember in the combat, there were like the spell, different spells would have different area of effects. Mm-hmm. Um, you had the bow, bow and arrows that could have different ranges, and you try and upgrade. So yeah. it was definitely, there were a bunch of tactics came into play there. And I guess in the game, uh, Minax and Mondane, they... Uh, they had this demonic creation called Exodus, and you're summon, summoned by Lord British to defeat Exodus. And one of the cool things, I guess you talked about this earlier when we yeah. were like preparing, is that you couldn't just kill him, right? No, it was the, the, the end of the game. It wasn't, it wasn't even you do a bunch of puzzles, and then you get to the, the main boss and kill him. It was you kill the end boss, but then you have to solve these sets of puzzles to finish the game. It was like the puzzles were actually the very end. It was very, it was very strange, but I, at the time, satisfying. It was like, <laughs> it was very weird, but I enjoyed it. But I guess if you, if you did, win, did you win the game, Woody? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you call Origin and report your winning? No. Because no. if you would have, you know what you'd have gotten? What? A received? Gotten is not really a good word. What would he have received? That's right. <laughs> he would have received a certificate autographed by Richard Garriott. Oh, wow. you should have yeah. called in, Woody. Nice. That know. would be worth something today. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So this game became Ultimate Three became a huge hit. Uh, and it's often, as we mentioned earlier, cited as a main inspiration for later uh, game developers. So in 1984, Origin signs a distribu- distribution deal with Electronic Arts. And then in 1985, Ultima IV is completed and released, The Quest of the Avatar. Right, and this is the first in the new Age of Enlightenment trilogy. So that How's should- that different than the other trilogy, Tom? Well... It got away from just a sort of hack-and-slash dungeon crawl, and it got into this idea of more the game being about ethics and morals and you know trying to develop yourself as a, a moral character. And I guess that kind of came from the fact that, um, I guess Richard has stated that he began writing it 
when he realized, partly from letters from enraged parents, <laughs> that in the earlier games, immoral actions like stealing and murder of peaceful citizens had been necessary or at least very useful in order to win the game, and that such features might be, quote, objectionable. <laughs> right, and what's funny to me is, you know, back in 1985... He started to get away from that and, and introduce moral elements to the game where you couldn't just go around randomly killing people and stealing their items and stuff. And yet, for probably 20 years after that, just about every other RPG still had those same features where you just walk into people's houses, go, oh, look, oh, what's in this cupboard? Oh, there's an item. I'll just take it. And, you know, you just get away with that and there's no consequences. And it took a long time, I think, for other games to catch up with this idea that. You know, maybe you shouldn't just go around being a, a burglar and call yourself a hero. Right. Yeah, and Grand Theft Auto and... Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so the objective of this game, I guess, is, uh, is, to, is to follow the main character's development in virtuous life and become a spiritual leader, an example to the people of Britannia. And in this game, um, the world is now unified under Lord British's rule, and that's when they renamed it, I guess, Britannia, right? Right. And so, uh, you follow this uh, protagonist struggle to understand and exercise the eight virtues. And after proving uh, your understanding of each of these virtues and meditating at the shrines of the virtues, you become the avatar, which is your key role in all the later games, right? Right. And um, in, go ahead. Oh, well, this was also the first ultimate game to have a, a more fully developed conversation system. Right. And it was named by Computer Gaming World as the number two best game of all time. When was, it, when was it named that, Tom? In 1996. <laughs> it's probably not still number two, but yeah, in 96 it was. Yeah. And what's kind of cool about this game as well is if you're interested in, in checking out these games, if you haven't, which you definitely should because these games are, are some of the best games I think ever made, you can download uh, Ultima 4 free. Uh, it's currently downloadable legally from the internet, and we'll provide a link at the end of the show of how to download it. So moving on to 1986, uh, Origin reacquires the rights to Ultima 1 and 2, I guess from California Pacific, probably, right? Or maybe even Sierra, since Sierra was doing the distribution, I'm not sure who, but uh, but they include them in the Ultima trilogy, so they released the trilogy, and I think that included Ultima Zero as well, right? And in 1987, Origin signed a distribution deal with Bruderbund. Is it Broderbund or Bruderbund? It's I would say Broderbund. Broderbund, I think, is right. Well, it, it has the, it has isn't those, that, isn't it has, that right? The O has those Wait weird accent yeah. marks. Did, that, didn't it? Uh, didn't they also produce Galaga? Oh, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> it was Load Runner. You're thinking of the <laughs> no, see, second of see, the greatest games of all time. <laughs> Bruderbund means brotherhood. Okay, and it, I think it is pronounced Bruderbund, but we can, I'm sure we'll hear from our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, same year, uh, Ultima Five was released for the Apple II. Also in uh, oh, no, that wasn't the same year. That was it was in eighty eight. Tom, yeah, eighty eight. Tom, get it right. <laughs> <laughs> and Ultima Five was known as the Wars of Destiny. And what was that game about, Tom? Well, you learn that Lord British has been lost on an expedition into the into the underworld, and the throne of Britannia. <laughs> I can't talk. Britannia. Britannia. Tom has been usurped by a tyrant known as Lord Blackthorn. And three shadowy figures known as the Shadow Lords are terrorizing the countryside. Right. So the Avatar, who we talked about in the last, he's the guy who got all the virtues, right? Right. He uh, is summoned back to Britannia by his friends. Together they form the Warriors of Destiny in order to eliminate the Shadow Lords, undermine Blackthorn's rule, and restore Lord British to his throne. 
So this game deals with issues like fundamentalism and moral absolutism. Which is the whole moral aspect of these games. It's not hack and slash, which I think is very cool. And at the time, I think, you know, I thought was a lot different than a lot of the games I was playing. You know, it just had this whole moral side that I didn't see in a lot of games. So, And this game also had a time of day system where the sun would rise and set and non-player characters would have schedules that they'd follow through the day. Of course, this this is uh, you can see this in games like Grand Theft Auto but and stuff today. Isn't this one of the first games, or, or probably the first game to have that? Right? I, maybe maybe it was the first game to have it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's also been celebrated as having a realistic culture living under a dictatorial regime. So it has this dark kind of tone to it, much yeah. darker than Ultima Four. Characters you talk to are kind of paranoid in their conversations. Very interesting, and it was very different. Yeah, it was the last Ultima developed for the Apple II as well. Yeah, interesting. So recently, I guess a bunch of fans created a three-dimensional version of Ultima V as a modification for Dungeon Seed called Ultima V Lazarus. 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 Damn, dude. We're mispronouncing everything. (laughs) We're good like that. Yeah. All right, so in 1989, the Nintendo version of Ultima 3 was released in Japan among a media blitz that saw Lord British splashed across billboards and TV screens. And then in 1990, what happened? Uh, Ultima 6 released for the PC. This is Ultima 6, The False Prophet. Yeah, and it was the last in the Age of Enlightenment trilogy. So in this one, uh, some years after Lord British has been returned to power, the Avatar is captured and tied onto a sacrificial altar and about to be sacrificed by these red demon creatures like gargoyles. And the Warriors of Destiny suddenly appear, save the Avatar, and collect the sacred text the gargoyle priest was holding. So back in Castle Britannia, the Avatar learns that the Shrines of Virtue were captured by the Gargoyles, and he embarks on a quest to rescue Britannia from the invaders. Right. And I guess, you know, from the moral aspect of this game being the last in the Age of Enlightenment trilogy, it deals with cultural difference and issues of racism, uh, you know, and xenophobia related to the difference. And technologically, the game kept the basic tile system and screen layout of the three uh, preceding parts, but altered the look into a much more like pseudo isometric view because they now they could take advantage of the PC's newly released VGA graphics cards, right? So now when you talk to a non-player character, you would see their portrait. Um, it was also one of the first major PC games to target systems that had VGA graphics and a mouse. Right. And this also, there's a project, I guess, to recreate this uh, Ultima 6 using this Dungeon Siege engine as well. So... And then in 1990, we get a couple weird, or the start of a couple weird games released <laughs> uh, in the series. Savage Empire. It's known as a Worlds of Ultima game since it doesn't play in Britannia. And uh, yeah, I just, this one is weird. Did you did either you guys play this one? Cause I, I did not nope. play this. No. No. Yeah. But it takes place in an Amazonian world dominated by dinosaurs. Yeah. And there's characters to interact <laughs> with, like Stone Age tribes and mad scientists and lizard men. I should have played it because I love games with lizard men. Oh, I, I can say. It's like Land of the Lost or something. Yeah. And you have to fight for survival uh, against gorillas and tigers and stuff. And it has a sort of familiar engine, I guess, somewhere between Ultima 6 and Ultima 7. Right. And then in 1991, we get the next. Ultima, uh, the Worlds of Ultima game, Martian Dreams. And that was the last uh, World of Ultima game. I guess the hero heads off to Mars at the turn of the century. Uh, and uh, it's a very similar game to Space 19 or 1889. I don't even know what that is. Do you? Uh, that's a, isn't that a role-playing game? Like a pen and oh, paper role-playing game? Yeah, I think you're right. I think so. It's like a, a sort of 
early steampunk, uh, you know, they had space flight back in the 1800s, sort of an idea. And I guess you chat with characters of the 19th century, including Freud, Tesla, and Mark Twain, and try to solve problems of the ancient civilization that left its mark on Mars as your spacecraft crashes uh, after taking off from the 19 or 1893 World's Exhibition in Chicago. I, these games just seem odd to me. They do but, seem weird. It seems like they were trying to branch out and do something totally different, though. What? I didn't play either of these games, so I can't really say whether they're good or bad. But the concept do seem a bit odd. Well, that concept seems very reminiscent of Mist. I mean, I'm sure the gameplay was completely different, mm, yeah. but that whole trying to solve something in a steampunk-like lost civilization huh. on a foreign planet, I don't know. Good point. Just... So then comes a game uh, also in 91, and I remember playing this game, Ultima Underworld, the Stygian Abyss. And uh, this was one of the first, I think, RPGs to have a first-person 3D... Uh, real-time 3D engine, kind of like Doom or something like that. Uh, it was it was indoors. You had to explore dungeons. It was mouse-based. You would click on things, and and there was a combat system where you you know swing your sword from a first-person point of view. It I, it reminds me today of uh, oh what's that game uh, on the 360. Oblivion. Oblivion. Yeah. <laughs> the game that you you the took game, back. The game that I took back because it was so buggy. Yeah. Well, this was released around the time of Doom, so it looks like they were kind of trying to fill a void, having this kind of 3D, you know, melee-type combat system uh, in place to kind of compete with those kind of games. Right. I mean, at the time, Doom was such a phenomenon that everybody was trying to jump on the bandwagon and have a first-person 3D game of some sort. Now, know? I may be wrong, but I seem to remember that this came out at the same time, and it wasn't so much that they were basing it on Doom as that they both had this idea for a first-person shooter at the same time. Hmm. It was that... And it, and the and the graphics for the time were really incredible. The difference was the Doom had the had the graphics engine of the first person shooter, and it also made things so much fast paced that it was like Doom became the cultural phenomenon. Right. Hmm. But the but the gra- but this wasn't a rip off of Doom. And the graphics were all were basically the engine was as revolutionary as Doom. It just didn't capture that zeitgeist. It didn't have that 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 fast paced shoot 'em up thing, which is what captured you know everyone's made Doom the phenomenon. And as a side note, the engine used in this in these games was later used for System Shock. Uh, Warren Spector also worked at Origin, and we'll right. talk talk about him in a bit. So then, in 1992, Ultima Seven is released, and Ultima Seven uh, was released in two parts and two expansion packs in 1992 and 1993, and uh, they're really seen as by many players as kind of the high point of the series. Uh, they have detailed worlds, medieval music, and many memorable non-player characters. Um, Ultima 7 is called The Black Gate. That's the first Ultima 7 was The Black Gate. Yeah. And at the start, an evil creature called the Guardian taunts the Avatar and tells him that Britannia has entered into a new age of enlightenment and that he will eventually rule Britannia. The Avatar, I guess, arrives in Britannia via a red moon gate. And he, uh, he, he arrives intrinsic. Yeah, and he's asked to solve a ritualistic murder that occurred the night before. He also learns that the Fellowship, a new religious philosophy led by a man called Batlin, has been formed. Now, uh, I guess that people kind of say that might have been inspired by something. No. I, I guess there's some, again, conspiracy theories out there that uh, the Fellowship is in, was inspired by... Um, Tom Cruise or... Scientology. <laughs> oh, okay. Scientology. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I get it mixed up. 
No offense to any Scientologists out there. It you makes about I, as much sense as anything else. When I played <laughs> this game, I never thought of that. I never thought that it was it, it, making fun of any particular real-world group. No, it, it totally seemed cult-like. I mean, I, do, I definitely got that it was a cult. I never, It never occurred to me that it was based on any specific uh, group. But. Right. Yeah, and I guess the turn-based gameplay was abandoned for real-time gameplay. The whole screen was now devoted to the map, and anything else uh, was kind of overlaid on the map. And the game is known for its interactivity. Uh, almost everything can be taken, moved, or interacted with in some way. And it's also pretty non-linear. Even though the main quest is fairly linear, linear there's a lot of sub-quests, including one that parodies Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, so a lot of this stuff is just kind of off the wall, but, you know, it was a really good game. And parts of the storyline, I guess, uh, were inspired by the hatred for electronic arts, Origins hatred, <laughs> and specifically Richard Garriott's hatred for electronic arts. So mm-hmm. This is another aspect that I never noticed when I played through the game originally. But now that, you know, now that we find out about this, it kind of makes sense. Um, the main antagonist of the story, the Guardian, is presented as a destroyer of worlds. Quote, a destroyer yes. of worlds. And the Origin corporate slogan was, we create worlds. So you could think of it that maybe the Guardian represented electronic arts in their attempts to destroy the competition. Right. And And the three evil generators uh, created by the Guardian in the game took the physical shapes of of a cube, a sphere, and a tetrahedron. And what is that uh, reminiscent of? Well, it's like the EA logo. Right, the old EA logo. The old EA logo, not the new one that just says EA. And Elizabeth and Abram, uh, they're two benevolent characters who later turn out to be murderers. They have the initials E and A. So, Right, and the, uh, the EA logo, the old cube, sphere, tetrahedron one, occurs again in Ultima 8. Yeah, right. So, But of course this is all just coincidence. Yeah, people right. Are, <laughs> no, people are crazy. Yeah, no, no. So then we move on to Ultima 7, Serpent Isle. That's the second of the Ultima 7 series. So wh- why were there two Ultima 7s? Now I think I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, but it, it totally made sense. Someone else, I, it wasn't my idea, but someone else said probably because Gary at one point made the claim that they always rewrote their code from scratch, right. and of course they didn't do that between these. So instead right. of making it a new Ultima Eight, <laughs> they made it Part Two. Right, and in Tricky. fact, uh, Richard Gary, I guess he had interviews around 1988. And he said that, you know, again, like just what you stated, that no two Ultimas shared the same source code, unlike the then-competing Bard's Tale series. So he probably felt bound by the statement, you know. So they're, they just made a part one and part two of Ultima 7. Right. and it, It's kind and of like a loophole. Well, we'll work yeah. around, if you will. No, and it, it made sense. It also, you know, to allay the fans, any any uh, crazy fanboys out there who would have, you know, railed at them for reusing the same code, they, they were able to say, well, it wasn't a new Ultima, it was just, you know, Part expansion two. pack. Yeah. So I guess Bard's Tale, you know, used the same code on a lot of theirs. Now, who who produced Bard's Tale? I, I can't I can't recall. Was that EA? That would be Electronic Arts. Yes. Ah. <laughs> so there you go. So what happened in Ultima Seven, the uh, the Serpent Isle? Well, when the Avatar destroyed the Black Moon Gate that the Guardian was coming through, uh, Batlin, remember the bad guy from yeah, before, right. he, f- he fled to Serpent Isle, and the <laughs> Warriors of Destiny uh, pursued him and found that. There was a strange land that had a lot of different customs in Britannia. It was a big icy island uh, with remains of an ancient culture where serpents played a central role. Yeah, and I guess it's speculated that the differences between Britannia and Serpent Isle were meant to uh, parallel the differences between the UK and the United States, which you talked about earlier, Woody. Oh, did I? Prior to the podcast, you were talking about the U.S. versus U.K. thing in one of the games. It was probably Ultima 7 Serpent Isle. 
All right. Well, maybe Woody didn't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's great theory. Yeah, that's mine. No, I. Um, yeah. All right. So then, in 1992, uh, Electronic Arts buys Origin. So they hate Origin. I mean, uh, Origin, Origin hates, hates Electronic them, Arts, but then, uh, but then they buy them. So uh, how did that happen? Well, at the time, it was it cost a lot to manufacture a game, and part of this was because it was before the days of CD-ROMs, so games came on a whole bunch of discs. And uh, some of these games were getting big to the point where they came on 8 to 10 discs, and each disc cost about 70 cents to produce. Um, and at the same time, the teams of programmers required to make games like this kept getting bigger and bigger, which also added to the cost of a game. And a game I guess we didn't mention was Wing Commander. That's a huge game for Origin, but we were trying to stick mainly to the Ultima series. But, uh, for example, I guess Wing Commander 2 had 25 people working on it, including the head designer Chris Roberts, and he was uh, not a cheap uh, person to keep on staff. So right, they were spending right. a lot of money on their teams. Uh, a lot of money to produce these uh, discs, you know, 70 cents each with 8 to 10 discs for product. And also the Apple and Commodore 64 platforms, which were kind of their cash cow, collapsed. Mm-hmm. And also, back in 1992, that was when the savings and loan industry collapsed. There was the big SNL uh, meltdown and the real estate bubble. And the, so getting any kind of business loan all across any industry yeah, was this, tough. This really affected Origin because they found it harder and harder to get loans. So I guess uh, EA was probably the best place to go because they figured they could at least get their projects funded and have the money to do the stuff they wanted, right? So, so Sounded how, good. Yeah. So I, I guess it worked out pretty good because they did get the bigger budgets, right? But they also had this new freedom that they really didn't have in the past, and it sounds like they kind of mismanaged it, right? Well, it sounds like things sort of got out of control. They grew very rapidly. Hiring hundreds of new people, many of them are inexperienced. I guess it went from 200 to 400 employees in the first year alone, which is staggering. It'd be mm-hmm. hard to manage all that, the new hires, you know. Well, and I'm, I'm really sympathetic. I remember reading somewhere, I think, an interview with Richard Garrett, where he talked about the fact that one of the things that was promised or it made it seem like a good idea was that EA promised to take over all the business aspects that he you know he wasn't really interested in he didn't want, right. he wanted to be a game designer and he got to, he was tired of you know having to deal with how we're going to pay for the cost how we're going to do it and EA you know has promised that well they take over all that they handle all that and we just we just get you a staff and you just make games course it never works out like that in the yeah. end well one problem i guess is that ea was very political unlike origin it was all about you know getting the best product out and people within origin started to jockey for position within ea right so it ultimately resulted in fracturing the team you know mm-hmm. the, the teams that had developed within origin it kind of the origin culture that they had lived by for so long on all these ultimate games and the other games they were producing pretty much uh, went away and, uh, of course, you know, spending all this money, hiring all these people, they were uh, not staying on schedule. So EA was forced to uh, kill a lot of the projects that Origin was working on and force them to stay on schedule. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the games, uh, you know, if you, you know, Rich, if you read what uh, Richard Garrett says, you know, they were forced to produce these inferior games. And they weren't able to apply what they had done in the past, which is we're going to get the best game out. If it's late, you know, you know right. that's fine. So in 1994, under all this pressure and, and change, Ultima... Uh, Ada's released, uh, Pagan. So why don't you talk about that, Tom? Well, this one was not really quite as well-received as some of the other Ultimas, and Richard Garriott has blamed it on the hasty development that was made to make, to meet the release date mm-hmm. uh, now that they're working under EA. Right. And uh, 
but the plot is that after the defeat of Batlin on Serpent Isle, the Guardian banishes the Avatar to a world that he's already conquered called Pagan. And he learns that there's four titans on Pagan. Each has one of the elements as uh, his or her domain, water, air, fire, and earth. So during the quest, the Avatar collects the four artifacts of the titans and unleashes violent thunderstorms, hurricanes, earthquakes, and meteor showers. And these artifacts allow him to defeat the titans. So there's a lot of complaints about this game, and Woody... Th- now, I well, know for a so, fact, before the podcast, you were telling me all the yes, complaints about this yeah. game, Woody. So. <laughs> well, I know, there was listed a bunch here, and there, there were you, a lot of things... you lied and said that you didn't remember seeing that other one earlier, I know you did. <laughs> yeah, I was just setting you up on that other one. But, okay. uh, no, the, there were a lot of things that a lot of people saw as a step back. You know, there were smaller maps... Um, there were no portraits for the non-player characters. The day and night cycles that have been, you know, a new thing went away. Um, you're back. There's no more party or lone hero. But a, one of the the biggest complaint I remember came out was that um, they stuffed a bunch of other stuff. In. It was much. There was a lot of hack and slash combat. And the biggest one, which wasn't really that big a part of the game, but it just summed up everything, was there were platformer elements in this game. <laughs> oh, and no. It's, yeah, and you'd have to like jump onto stones using the mouse. It was a terrible interface. And I just remember that being yeah, like the epitome the of everything that, that was too. wrong. People go, there's a platformer element in an Ultima? What is up with that? Yeah. So, very, oh, and it was very buggy. So, uh, did, you, you know. did you like the game, Woody? Um,. You no, know, I didn't finish it. No, you know, I didn't finish it. I just didn't capture my attention. I played it for a while, and I never got very far. All right, so, uh, yeah, thumbs down from Woody on that one. Yeah. So then in 1996, uh, you know, Garriott had to fight to get Ultima Online Jumpstart. I think everybody's probably familiar with Ultima Online listening to the podcast. But I guess EA was trying to push out Ultima 9, and, and Garriott's like, no, we need to do this Ultima Online thing. It's really cool. And he had to really, you know, kind of fight to get it. Uh, but... And what really kind of sealed it was they did this alpha test for Ultima Online, and a huge number of players participated. I remember trying to get into that. I remember yeah. seeing that, and I tried to sign up. It was like this. It was crazy. The internet was going crazy just to get into the alpha. And then following the alpha, 50,000 people signed up for the beta test of Ultima Online. So in 1997, EA is like, okay, we see what you're saying. And then they shifted all development away from Ultima 9 so they could work on Ultima Online. And later that year, they released uh, the Ultima Online, and it was just a huge success. Um, and it really, I think, opened the door for a lot of the massively multiplayer games. It that was we the see first. Today. I mean, it was the first first of the this generation, first of the modern generation of MMOs. You know, beyond the text based dungeon crawls, yeah. it just really broke it up. And, and then, of course, others surpassed it since then. EverQuest, right after it, and then um, World of Warcraft. But that was really the first that opened. Right it up for everyone else. Now, I've heard that in the early days, especially of Ultima Online, that it was really sort of a Wild West environment where players could attack each other, and people would just, like, lie in wait for their players and attack them and take all their items. And oh, very it was much just so. brutal. It was, it was <laughs> pure. There was PvP, anyone against anyone at any time. Well, the, the cities were kind of protected with the guards, but it was really, you go outside the city, and it was anarchy. PvP, you could, people could steal. They'd kill you, and they could take all your stuff you had on your body, so you'd have to store stuff in the bank. It was very much more the the um, wild hard geared for hardcore players, much more so than any of the games today. This so, is the first and massively multiplayer game to uh, reach a hundred thousand subscriber base as well. So it was fairly popular. Yeah, and it's even listed in the Guinness Book of World's Records. What, wow! What is it? What does it have a record for? Uh, longest continuously running MMORPG. All right. 
So on, then Ultima 9 got released in 1999 finally, right? Ultima 9 As- Ascension. Yeah, it's the final Ultima game, and it just was crap, apparently. <laughs> I didn't play this one. I played I a lot of the earlier ones, but Ultima 9 I didn't play. Ill-received by fans. It did really bad in sales. Uh, in fact, there was such an outcry, I guess, that Origin had to shut down the official online help page due to so many negative posts. Yeah. Um, you had a lot less control of what path to take in the game. A lot of areas were completely blocked off until you completed certain quests. So people felt like it was less open-ended exploration. It oh, was more... It was it was as close to being on rails as an RPG can come. <laughs> yeah. So what I find interesting here in talking about, you know, after they went to... Origin went to Electronic Arts is that Electronic Arts is all about putting out sequels, right? And making money like Madden series in this series. And in fact, we didn't put this in you know, the notes, but they talk about how right after Ultima Online was a success that EA was saying, you need to do Ultima Online 2 as a <laughs> sequel. And they're like, well, it doesn't really make sense to do a sequel to a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. But EA really didn't get that. Well, it could, but you get you do years later when the technology Because yeah. if you do it right away, you're just going to kill the yeah, first right, one. right. But so... And you can kind of see it with like Ultima Nine. They're just like, we need to shove out the next one. We need to get it out. You right, know? right. If it's buggy or not, we need to get it out. We need to start making stuck money. in that mindset. And I think you can see that today. I don't think that has changed at EA. They're still into Madden. You know, you know, every year, uh, all these games. Every year, you have an update, and that's how they make their money. And a lot of them are buggy, just like these games were buggy back then. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you look at like the NCAA football with the running on the PSP, I mean, a huge bug got in there. You know, I, I just don't understand. Well, you know? and I don't think they learned anything because this is still their only MMO, isn't it? I mean, EverQuest and the Star Wars Galaxies, that's all Sony. And War- Warcraft is, of course, um, Blizzard. Blizzard. So it's like the EA, they, they have this one thing that they, they caught the tail of this dragon, but they, they still don't understand what they have. So, also in 1999, I think it was 99, Richard Garriott left EA Origin due to creative differences, probably on, you know, having to get games out before they're really ready. You know, not being able to really do his creative vision like they had said early in the Origin days that they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about the vision and, right. and being able to meet that. And and then in 2004, EA finally shut down Origin. Um, I guess, what did Garriott do after Origin, though? He worked on Lineage. He but. went to Lineage. Uh, he worked on City of Heroes, City of Villains. And Tabula Rasa, right? Mm-hmm. So, some side notes about Origin that we didn't get into. Obviously, we talked about it a little bit. Wing Commander was a huge series for Origin. Yep. Uh, Warren Spector, he worked at Origin from 1989 to 1996. He he was responsible for working on Ultima 7, Serpent's Isle. That was a sequel, right, to the Black Gate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ultima Underworld and System Shock. And Warren Spector's probably best known for like his Deus Ex yeah. game. Yeah, yeah, Deus Ex. Great game. Yeah, and... Another and I, now, I may be wrong. The fans will correct me. But I think it wasn't he also responsible for Thief, I believe. I'm not sure. It sounds likely that it was the kind of game he might yeah. have made. I don't know for sure whether that's If I'm true. totally wrong, people come on the forums, tell me. All right. I need to know. All right, so Garrett, he, uh, you know... Just some side notes about Richard Garriott. He built a haunted house museum as, in his residence called Britannia Manor, in, uh, and he uh, also promotes private space flight and is chairman of the board of the directors for Space Adventures and a trustee of XPRIZE. That's the, the race to have the first private you know, space mm-hmm. Is that what it is? Yeah. yeah first, yes. It, it's to uh, push private space flight technology. And it's very similar. Uh, it's a common theme in the industry because it's the same thing. He's he's working on a team, and so does uh, 
Richard Carmack. Richard He's, Carmack? Or, excuse me. <laughs> the John, one of the John, John Carmack. The John Carmack, yeah. Is also on a team for the X Prize. Right. right. So let's talk about just, you know, we went through a lot of that fairly quickly. We have the whole history of Ultimo. Kind of what, what, what do we see from all that? What, is, what does it mean, you know? Well, I think it really developed the RPG on computers and on even consoles as we know it today. I think none of those games would be what we see today without Richard Garriott and, and those early games, especially in the Ultimate series. Right, right. Well, and I think it's also one of those things where he really captured um, something that was out there. I And I, I think it might have been in one of the specials I saw about him and stuff, but they talked about how Anyone who ever played the tabletop role-playing games, D&D and Lord of the Rings, of course, all those people back when computers were coming around, you know any number of thousands of those people thought, "How? what if we brought this to a computer? How cool right. would that be? Um, but I think Richard Garriott was really the first one to actually successfully capture that in the old, you know, in the Ultima series. Yeah. So I mean, it's, it wasn't he he came up with this novel idea because I think the idea was out there, but he he carried it through first and so successfully, just amazing right. and still insp- inspirational today. And I guess you know, to me, he really you know pushed the envelope in terms of the way to design RPGs and pushing you know different concepts into the RPGs, right. and as well as technologically, he was pushing it. And I think the thing is, he was able to create these elaborate stories, you know, with moral implications, which is is awesome. You really don't even see that in games today, right? Well, I mean, Woody, right? like when you talk about the tabletop games like D anD D and bringing that to the computer, I think back then a lot of people thought, well, it's unnatural for the computer because there's all these complex rules to interpret and all these dice to roll, and you know, the computer's good at you know making these random numbers and and interpreting rules, but really. The games like D&D are not just about rolling dice, they're about telling a story. Right. And they're about having characters and, right. and creating a world. And that's what the Ultimate Games did really well. It was more than just that they rolled the dice for you. Right. It was that they created these worlds and these stories and these characters Immersive. that you felt like you could inhabit those worlds. Right. And, and that's really where it was at. It wasn't just a matter of, well, the computer can create this algorithm for me. Right. It's that the computer can create a world. Well, and another, uh, one other thing about the Ultimate Games, and I'm sure it wasn't intentional by them, um, so much as we talked about during, when we talked about id uh, remember the the Johns thought it was really important to come up with tools so that other people could make mods to the games because they knew that was one of their favorite things to do right to be able to modify the game and put their own stuff into them and I distinctly remember back when Ultima 3 was out that there was this underground um, map editor that you could get and you uh, go and edit uh-huh. the map to the game and make your own maps of the world and put mountains in different places and, mm-hmm. and create and basically modify it. And it was one of the first that really someone took it and modified it and allowed this whole underground community of people who would modify it and stuff. So it wasn't even so much them, but it was another one that that was another series of games where people could take it and make their put their own content into it and adapt it to the you know, for fun. All right. Well All right. I think that wraps up episode twelve of Twitch Silent Video Game Radio. We'll be back in two weeks this time, and like the month we were out this time. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Yeah, and definitely, and check out the forums. Uh, we want to get more interaction there. You guys have been great. There's been a lot of good conversations on there, but let's just, I guess we just want to try to keep it up. And also, if you could, please uh, go uh, to iTunes and, and vote for us, or not vote, just give us feedback there, as well as on Yahoo Podcasts. See you next time. See you in two weeks. Asta.
I guess they knew they were going to need it this year, but they couldn't get it together to go to a new place. So they were hoping to make it through, and it was just even worse than they thought. Yeah, it was bad, dude. It was ridiculous, in fact. Well, next year it's going to be crazy because, you know, no more E3. It's true. You ready, Tom? This, game, going, this game's bizarre, man. It's not a game. That's the difference, right? It's not a game. It's not a game, Tom. Well, it's like a weird way of creating music. So if you're wondering, the show is being delayed because Tom's playing Electroplankton and will not stop playing. <laughs> Here, let me hold it up to the mic so you can hear the music that I'm making with Electroplankton. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's, what What's are... crazy is we're not going to finish the podcast because Tom's playing Electroplankton. Okay, okay, I'll stop playing Electroplankton. Put my DS away. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Put your pussy away. What? <laughs> DS. <laughs> DS. You have to put that at the end as an outtake. Yeah. Except All for right. Woody's part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ultima 7. <laughs>